everywhere you go. Ants are just building bigger cities than we could ever imagine. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always, it was someone who, if she was starring in her own rat version of Don't Look Up, I Uh-oh. think she'd be played by Kristen Bell. That's what I go for, and that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. Thank you. I think I'm flattered. I don't know if I should fully be flattered. <laughs> I think I'm flattered. I, mean, I love Kristen Bell, so, you know. She'd make, I'm just trying to figure out, yeah, she'd make a good rat, and she's kind of like... She's kind of all over the place. That makes sense for me. That's really good characterization. Who who do you think would play you? I I suppose you would be a planet in the movie. You would be the thing crashing into Earth. Exactly. Who yeah. Is, who would play you? <laughs> well, I was thinking about because in the last podcast I did say that it was everyone's homework to watch. Don't look up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that is close to my field. You know, so I guess for all science communicators, you could think about what would happen to your job if something catastrophic was associated. You know, like what happened happen if like rats just became sentient and started taking over the cities and then all of a Uh sudden you were that go-to person that everyone was like Kaylee what is going on with these rats how would you deal with it oh I see what you're saying Kristen Bell isn't a rat Kristen Bell is playing me in the rats take over the world movie yeah 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 okay I'm on board now well you know what I like that you're thinking about that and I don't know if rats would take over the world but you know what might what ants Oh. And today we are going to talk about our favorite critters, ants. So today we are joined by Aaron Fairweather, who is a PhD candidate and lecturer at the University of Guelph, where they investigate ants' role in agricultural systems. They're also active in LGBTQ2SIA plus issues, working to support the community in friendly spaces. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hello. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So, Aaron, who would play you in the movie that if ants were taking over the world in the Don't Look Up version? I don't know, honestly. Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell would also play. Well, let's talk about let's let's talk about ants because, of course, you know they could take over the world. I've had encounters with ants invading my apartment. There, I see them everywhere. Let's talk about you. Where did your fascination with ants come from? Like, how did you start to love these tiny little creatures? Honestly, I kind of fell into it. I've just always been passionate about insects in general. I was always the kid on the playground that was like hands on your knees and looking at an anthill or looking at the next bug kind of walking around and people always thought it was weird. But uh, I I love just talking about them and sharing about them and learning as much as I could. I even had little like journals when I was a little kid, uh, drawing them and writing about them. And (laughs) I, I really nerded out about insects growing up. And so I just kind of learned generally all I could about insects. But when I got uh, into high school, I started working at the local museum and there was a real huge knowledge gap uh, in the local area with regards to ants. And it was kind of this perfect storm. At the same time, there was a course nearby that was teaching about ant taxonomy and diversity and ecology. Uh, and so the curator was like, we're just going to send you on this. You're going to become the ant expert and you're going to start doing this. And I was like, okay, I'm happy to learn anything I can about insects. Uh, but I just, I, I fell in love with them. I, I thought it was like a really cool crossover between like complex behaviors that you usually associate with like 
large mammals or like things with bigger brains, but uh, uh, with these small, tiny organisms. And uh, I've just been passionate about them ever since. I'm sorry. I can't believe you kept a lab notebook <laughs> at such an early age. <laughs> yeah. Was it more thorough than a lab notebook you would keep now would be? Yeah. 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 It was actually surprising. So I have multiple iterations and gross of lab notebooks from when I was uh, like a child. So my earliest one was legitimately when I was two years old. Uh, I had a little notebook that I would go out and uh, like color caterpillars that I saw, just kind of like lines with different colorations. Uh, and then my parents let me keep them in the house and we watched them grow up into butterflies and stuff like that. And then as I got into like elementary school, it started to be like, what was their common names? Middle school was like, okay, now I know what their common names are. So let's learn a little bit more about them. Let's learn about animals in general and how they relate. And it came, became a little bit more general. And then when I graduated from middle school, I went to the bookstore, local bookstore, and my parents were like, you can pick out any book that you want uh, for graduating from this uh, bookstore. And I found the most expensive insect textbook I could find. And it was legitimately the insect textbook that I was learning from in third year university later on. Uh, <laughs> so I read that probably like four or five times when I was in high school. And uh, that was the point where it was like, I was taking photos of the insects. I was documenting all of the structures. I was drawing them out in a little bit more detail. And then I was taking notes about location, time of day, the temperature, humidity, and like anything else that I could note about like where they were and what they were doing. Um, and so when I got to the museum and then I started taking like entomology courses and they were like, oh, you need like Latin long location and like who caught it. And that's pretty much it for when you first kind of collect it. I was like, oh, but I have <laughs> all this template of all these notes I could be taking about these things. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of funny. I love that so much. I wonder if all the people around you were like, I wonder what they're going to be when they grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, immediately everybody knew me as like the bug kid, like I would walk into class and everybody's like, oh, bug kid, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> so in the Hitchcock version of the birds, you know, birds took over the world. Uh, lots of people talk about ants perhaps being the dominant species in the world. Are they actually all connected? Like, what is this thing that we, when we talk about ants potentially being the dominant species in the world, are they really or what's going on there? I mean, I would certainly argue yes. Like... There's just such a huge layer to ants in ecosystems and just like every terrestrial ecosystem, except Antarctica, but like everywhere you go, ants are just building bigger cities than we could ever imagine. Um, there was a tweet going around a while ago of a big aluminum excavation. So they poured aluminum into this leaf cutter nest and they were they spent the next like I think it was like year excavating this thing out. And it spanned about like a kilometer in width. And then in depth, it was like a couple of stories. It was huge. And the nest itself was made up of like, it must have been at least 10 million ants or something like that. Mm. Um, and that's like one nest from an individual like this species that is hugely widespread all across South America. But those giant subterranean cities exist everywhere on the planet. Like you go into your front lawn and the most common, and at least where I am in Ontario is uh, this species called Laziest Neoniger. And there's dozens of nests on every front lawn and they're the same thing. One single nest can span, I would say like 
probably about like seven meters in width and maybe like two meters in depth. We were excavating live colonies uh, during part of my research, and they can be absolutely massive and they're just everywhere. So sorry, to excavate one of these, you pour in some stuff and then you start like picking away at it. Is that what happens? Yeah, yeah. It's the same kind of idea as like archaeology where you're slowly kind of excavating out some kind of bigger like city or something like that that's old and been say, swathed away in the sand, uh, you would slowly pick away at it just the same kind of way. It's really, it really is just excavating an old city. That's super cool. I for sure didn't learn anything like that when I learned about ants in school. I think one of the things that we do tend to learn about when we learn about ants is about their social structures, right? That, that tends to be something that comes up. But for folks who may have forgotten, what does their social structure look like? Yeah, so they're eusocial, and the the social structure of insect uh, these ants can vary a little bit. Like, there's different forms of how they communicate and how they organize. Um, the most common that we know is that there's like a single queen, which is monogyny, and then you have a whole bunch of workers from various different castes or different subtypes of workers that help her kind of create a bigger city and protect her because she is a reproductive unit. So she is laying all the eggs and supplying all the bodies for this bigger city. And But there's multiple different types of that. You have polygyny, where you have multiple queens kind of in cohesion with one another. You can have um, multiplicitous colonies that are actually in conjunction with one another. These are sometimes referred to as super colonies. Um, these are genetically related queens that have their own colony, but they cooperate with one another. And those can sometimes span countries like what? in size. Yeah. Uh, there is one super colony that's known from um, the US. And I think it spans over half of the continent now that they it's this one species, um, the yellow crazy ant uh, or the Argentine ant. They're just like cooperating with one another and they won't the, it's kind of defined by the fact that they won't compete with one another for resources. They always share resources and they extirpate other species from the area if they're ever in contact with something they don't like. This is wild. I have a couple questions. Very quick. What does eusocial mean? Eusocial is, it's a couple of steps. So it's, uh, you have a queen or a single reproductive unit that is helping for the care of a colony of multiple generations. So you have overlapping generations. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's cooperation. So they are fending for food together and they're looking after young together and cooperating in that way. Yeah. Amazing. So you've talked about building cities and now you've talked about all this cooperation. How do these ants communicate with each other? Like how is it that they're able to collaborate? You some like you sometimes see for some of them, right, following each other in a little line. Like how does all of this happen? Is it magic? No, it's hugely complicated. <laughs> and it, it seems like magic because it's invisible, right? We can't see these trails that they're following. They just kind of know how to do it. Um, but mostly it's through chemical signals. Uh, these things called pheromones. Um, they lay them down when they're walking. It's like putting their own smell onto the ground. And then the rest of their sisters can smell that smell and know where to go or what to do. And they use multiple different kinds of these smells to dictate what exactly we're doing with. So it can be identification of who you're talking to. It can be identification of different roles in the nest. It can be identification of a trail, like this is where we go to find food. Sometimes it can even be an alarm pheromone. So marking something else as an enemy. 
And these are all different kind of words that they're putting onto the ground in chemical form. That's one of the ways that they communicate, but that can be difficult in environments where it either gets washed away really quickly or there's like moving gravel like sand. Mm -hmm. um, you can't leave something that stays very permanently in those cases. And so in other situations, you sometimes have uh, like a vocal communication. They, have, they can make different sounds. There's mm -hmm. a really cool example of that kind of getting discovered. Um, there's this genera of ants in the southern tropics called Paraponera. There are these massive ants, and the most well-known member of that group is the bullet ant that has the strongest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. But the differentiation between the species in this group was widely just visual, like based on morphological characters, what they looked like. And there was this one big group of species, uh, this one species that was known from all across South America. Uh, and it was kind of weird because typically in South America, there's a lot of really separate specific areas that different species occupy because of how diverse it is. So we started looking at it more specifically and more closely. And a scientist, I think it was in the 2010s, um, they got really close to a colony recording it with their phone. And they noticed that when they listened back to the audio, they could hear these squeaks coming from the colony. And they were like, what is that? And they amplified it. And it sounded like the ants were squeaking. Um, and so they went to a bunch of different colonies all across the uh, continent. And they found out that there's actually dozens of species within this one like, group we used to call a species. And they can all be separated by the different sound that they make. They have very specific um, striations on their gaster, we call it, or their abdomen. And they can excrete them back and forth and make a very specific sound. And that varies between species. Uh, but they use different frequencies of that and different like frequencies of calling to communicate with one another instead of pheromones in a case where you have flooding or extreme rainfall where they can't use chemical signals. This is incredible. And I really want to get technical and scientific here for a second. They are not, so they're not making sounds with their mouths. Yeah. They're making sounds with what is essentially their butts. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Just to be clear. Yeah, they they have two rigid segments on their butt that they just rub back and forth and they'll make like a little <laughs> <laughs> I love this. It's like they're playing a fiddle with their butt. This is incredible. Thank you. Thank you for bringing so much joy to my day. And I think you have a recording of some of these ants making noises. Uh, if we were to play some of that, what 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 would we hearing here? So you would hear different peaks and valleys of the striations. So certain species would have like a very like consistent tone of like e, and some of them would have like a e e e e kind of sound, and some of them would be more varied. So there would be more time between the different peaks and valleys. It would be like e e e e e. e. And it just varies depending on the species that you're dealing with. Very much like a cricket or a grasshopper, you can kind of tell by ear what's playing that particular night because of those different sounds and melodies. Okay, popping in here with a little editing treat. We reached out to the lead author of this work, Dr. Ronara D'Souza Ferreira Shalin, who very graciously allowed us to include the audio from this research. So we're going to play you two recordings which come from different morphs of these ants. Now, as Aaron mentioned, these sounds can actually be used to differentiate among species when they otherwise look very, very similar. We call these cryptic species. By combining these sounds with other information like genetics, we can actually reveal several species in a group that only looks like one. 
So here is a sound produced by one morph of the species Pachycondyla apicalis. And here, for contrast, is the sound made by another morph of the species. You can find the link to the paper and other sounds and pictures of these butt fiddles, or what is more technically called the stridulatory file, in the show notes. So Aaron, I think a lot of people associate ants, and I certainly have felt this at times, being very pests, like, you know, invading our homes, getting into our picnics, you know, all of this stuff. But what are some of the benefits of of ants to our, you know, not only our ecosystem, but to our agricultural systems? I know this is uh, largely part of the work that you do. So what are, what are some of the things that ants really do for us as humans? Oh, so, so, so much. And this is like one of my favorite <laughs> questions because I talk to farmers on like a daily basis almost about these benefits because um, one of the most surprising things that I found when I started my own research was I would go out to farms. I would say I'm looking for ants on my farm. And some of the farmers would be like, oh, no, we kill all of the ants. We don't want any ants on our property because they have been traditionally seen as pests. But more and more, we're learning through uh, our studies that ants provide just so much benefit. They aerate the soil, so they actually move the soil around and create pockets where roots can uh, move into. And plants actually need quite a bit of aerated space in order to thrive in in these uh, soil ecosystems. They also supply nutrients, so they bring in organic matter from the surface, move it in, and these nutrients help to the plant to grow. There's been a bunch of really cool research on things like um, phosphorus and nitrogen in the soil and found that around ant nests, the phosphorus and nitrogen is about like two to three times higher than without an ant nest present. And that's huge because especially for agricultural groups and farmers, they often apply fertilizers that contain phosphorus and nitrogen. So that can be huge. They're also predators. So they feed on a lot of pest species and then subsequently bring them into their nest. And some of that waste matter is then that uh, nutrients that the plants can then use. So it's kind of like a duo support. Even some of the things that have traditionally been seen as pest pressures, like aphid tending. Uh, ants actually tend to some pest species like aphids, which feed on plants and cause damage to them um, and protect them. But it's actually been seen that when ants protect them or culture them, they keep them at a number that's lower than the damage that would cause the plant to die. Whereas if the aphids were allowed to grow on their own, they often exceed that limit and kill off the plant. So some benefits there. There's even some ants that look like they're pollinators. This has come from some of my research and a little bit that has come out from blueberry fields in Maine. So any low-lying crop like blueberries or strawberries, things like squash and stuff like that, ants can easily get into those flowers. They often drink up the nectar, but then they get covered in pollen and they'll walk flower to flower just like a bee would. So huge, huge benefits. And we're just learning more and more as uh, as we go on with this research. And uh, maybe elaborate a little bit more on specifically what you your research is focusing on. You're just finishing up your PhD. So what are some of the things that you're delving into recently? So 
uh, there's this huge knowledge gap on looking at ants and agricultural systems as a focus. Like there's been a huge pressure into looking at uh, non-bee pollinators or just pollinators in general, especially over the past like 50 years or so. Um, and we're starting to learn more and more that there are these other beneficial insects and then complex systems that include insects are very beneficial for really strong agricultural practices and long-term agricultural practices. And so my research, I really wanted to connect my passion for ants that I've brought forward through my high school career and undergraduate career into my research. Um, and so it's really broad in scope. I initially looked at what ants are found in agricultural systems in my area, specific to Ontario, Canada, all kinds of agricultural systems from annual crops to orchards and all kinds of varieties. Um, and then identifying all those ant species, I then looked at, okay, what are they doing and what are the most important players in that system? So looking at them ecologically and behaviorally and how they're interacting with the plants, what kind of uh, detriments they're causing, what kind of benefits are they providing? And then further from that, based on the most common species I found, which is this laziest new nudger, I then decided to culture it in lab see how easy that was to do and try to make it as a model organism. So we can then take that and look at other systems because it's found ubiquitously. How is it impacting other agricultural systems? And then how are we impacting those agricultural systems by testing things like pesticides and things like tilling on these ants in a controlled setting in, in labs? Um, and so the last kind of bit of that is now I've successfully cultured them. I have hundreds of colonies in the lab right now, and we're testing a wide swath of pesticides that are commonly used in agricultural settings. And how are they impacting them? Not just whether they're killing them, but if they're changing their behavior, how are they interacting with other organisms? How are they moving things like the soil and that kind of thing? I like that they're called laziest. Are they the laziest ant? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would argue that they're the opposite. They're the they're just super common and super abundant everywhere. And they're also just like they're gorgeous and they're the best farmers and stuff. So I don't think it, it actually derives from that. I don't know what where laziness actually comes from, like what what its origin is. Yeah, there's there's so much that goes on behind scientific etymology. So you just mentioned that they're like laziest are the best farmers. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, ants ants can be farmers too, right? So there are some species, you already mentioned aphids, that will actually tend to things like aphids like they're cattle. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship between that sort of like tending of other insects, like they're cute little six-legged cattle? Ants actually, like, they have kind of the most intense relationships with so many different kinds of species. And like animal husbandry and farming and agriculture is just kind of one aspect of that. So when we're talking about aphids specifically, they kind of tend to aphids like we do cattle, like cows. Um, aphids will feed on plants. And as they feed on the plants, they secrete this substance called honeydew. It's this extremely sugary liquid because they can't drink everything that's coming from the plant at one time. And the ants covet that. They really enjoy it. It's like we would consider milk. Like a Slurpee. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or milk. No, you, you went with a way better analogy. <laughs> it's just a sweet, uh, sweet milk. 
And uh, so they tend to these aphids and they culture them and they control their populations. And then in return for the protection that the ants uh, give them, the aphids are free to give the honeydew and uh, that kind of thing. But there's also a variety of different other hemiptrans. Uh, Aphids are part of this bigger group, the true bugs or the hemiptrans. Um, And there's a whole bunch of them that ants will farm. And they do this in a variety of different places too. Like some aphids are in trees. Some of them are in grasses or more low-lying stuff. But there's also aphids that feed on root systems. And so uh, some ants will culture them underneath the ground and actually move them from place to place. Um, Sometimes if you have a subterranean ant species, one queen will like have the next generation of queens. And then as she's on her way out, uh, the queen will kind of gift her some of the ant cattle that she's been tending (laughs) and they can move on and culture the next plant next to them and produce her own colony. And this kind of behavior has been seen in a variety of different ways. We also have some ants that culture things like fungi. Mm -hmm. The leaf cutting ants are the best example of this. And their relationship with fungi is millions of years old. They, they grow it and they feed on the mushrooms. And some of the varieties have been isolated from colonies in South America that are legitimately the same genetic strain from 2 million years ago, because one queen will pass it on to the next and keep passing it on, uh, which is just incredible to think about. Yeah, it kind of sounds a little bit hipstery. You yeah, know, it's like it's like the sourdough that I buy across the across the water that comes from a hundred year old starter. You know, I'll, yeah. I'll pay extra for that. Yeah, <laughs> or it's like a big thing. I have uh, uh, a friend from India, and she has like a, a yogurt culture from her parents, and they gave it from their grandparents. And it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. It's really cool seeing those similarities. And then, uh, just like going on another layer that I re- learned recently on the like fungal gardens. Yeah, there's not just complex relationships with these fungi, but ants have complex relationships with each other. Uh, And they kind of have grown over time to be very competitive for different resources. So there's a group of ant species that are now specialists on trying to steal fungi, like the fungal gardens from leafcutter ants. Mm. So a whole species has like speciated just with that, like as their role in life. And then on top of that, there are species that will like kind of get contracted as um, <laughs> like militia to like protect the co- the fungal gardens from these raiders. And so there's just like this huge complex species web of interactions, which are just kind of jobs that we would think of for things that we see in our everyday lives too. Okay, just sorry to clarify. There's a species. It's tending it's tending the fungi. And yeah. then another species is like, I don't really want to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get real good at going in and stealing it. And they're like, I see you and what you're doing. We're going to hire this other species to protect the fungi. Yeah, and in return, they get okay. a little bit of a cut of the fungi. So there's like a mutualistic relationship against the commensalist. Like it's like- and all the pheromones that are going out there they're just just <laughs> directing things. Okay, we're on the same we're on the same page. So Aaron, as an as an science communicator, as an ant science communicator, this is where we met you at the Beakerhead Science Communication Workshop back in 2019. Oh, simpler time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you introduced us to Nazi, who is uh, someone that you uh, use as a science communication tool. So tell us about who Nazi is. So Nazi is uh, 
a way that I present myself online. Uh, they are my persona, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> when I went uh, to university, like I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about insects and like I needed to travel uh, away from my home for that. And I went to a, a place in the world where I knew nobody. And so at the same time as being very like socially anxious and awkward, I I didn't have a means to like get to know people very well. And I quickly found that the best way to connect with people or to find out things about myself was to do that online because uh, I didn't want to do it with people face to face. That was too uh, difficult for me at the time. Um, so I would be messaging on things like online image boards, identifying insects for people online. And I did it through this guise of this character. And rather than putting myself out online, I made this character for myself, which was like a bird, like in head, and uh, slowly started to connect with people. And I, I learned like how to talk with people a little bit better and slowly became more and more comfortable. And then I found this community of people that was all very like-minded and queer and weird. And that's kind of how I got into like connecting with people was very much through the science communication of talking about insects and that kind of thing. And I wanted to do that better and better and more and more. And so I embodied that character more and started to do a lot of my science communication work through that guys. It was kind of a safer way to do it for me. And I, it just kind of blossomed my confidence into the scientific like communication field. And so you uh, put these videos out. So you uh, had a YouTube channel. You've also been doing a lot of TikTok uh, videos. Like how is the evolution of that, um, of Nazi and uh, how are you using social media and the different methods of communicating to the public? It's been really fun. And I, I think the the advantage of using a character like that, and then it gives it like a cartoony feel. It helps you connect with a lot of people in different ways. And then um, this is something that I've talked about a few with a few people from the fandom as well, it's really fun to connect your hobbies and science. So there's been this huge stigma for a long time that like science can't be fun. It has to be very professional and objective. But I think that ostracizes a lot of people from learning about science. It makes it more like scary to learn it. But when you have this ability to then bring in yourself into the system and like talk about things that you're passionate about, but then also connect with people on a more personal level, like that becomes really interesting. And I, I think we're seeing more of that. Like you can even see it in like sports fandoms and stuff, like people really breaking down the sports in terms of like the physics and the chemistry that's going on, the physiology. And that really brings people into like these fields from different walks of life, which maybe normally wouldn't be exposed to that. Um, and so doing that through the videos I do on TikTok and YouTube, you get some like weird glances and awkward comments at times. But then there's so many people that are like, I love learning about bugs from a bird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we do too. Well, and I think you highlighted something interesting there too, right? There's like the science communication aspect, but also I think it reveals that scientists are people. And Science, as you said, right, is, has been shown as you're supposed to be professional, you're, you are objective, but you are a person doing science and your identity influences how you approach science as well. And it's really important to remember that science is done by people with their own interests and own biases and all this kind of stuff that we need to, we need to think about. And that's important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also bringing into it that like, because we're people, 
people can make mistakes and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And that's an important part of science. Yeah, we all need to learn that failure is part of the process and to be accepting of it and kind of celebrate it a little bit. So speaking of uh, groups of creatures that like fiddles and like butts, you know who uh, is coming around, Aaron? No. (laughs) (laughs) The nerd herd. Why is the sky butts at the center of a black hole? Does anyone have free will? What is like carbon earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post them just like we did with Aaron on Twitter and on Instagram uh, at NerdyteYVR. Our first question comes in from Isha. How many different types of ants are there in BC? And do any of them float on leaves over water? Now, you're from the East Coast, uh, New Brunswick, and now in Guelph. So maybe this is an opportunity to talk about different types of ants. Are, are ants the same here as they are over there? So some are. There is some crossover between species across uh, Canada. There's probably, I would say it's about like 25% or so are found all the way across Canada and various places like um, the one species I work with, Laziest New Niger, again, is found pretty much on the entire continent. Um, there might be different subspecies associated with it, different behaviors slightly depending on where you are, but we generally think that that species is pretty ubiquitous. But there is a lot of unique species that are from place to place. Uh, I think there's about a hundred and it's like 150 species from BC. Um, there's actually no really condensed list of ants for most places in Canada. There is one from Alberta, and then I'm making one for New Brunswick. But otherwise, there's like really small lists or just reports of species, but there's not a consolidated list. But it's about that. In terms of leaf rafting ants, I don't know about leaves. <laughs> ant sailors. Yeah. Well, so there are ant sailors. There, I don't know about using leaves specifically, but Ants happen to be, in general, pretty hydrophobic, which means they'll float on the water. And so there is one species that's found in the southern areas of BC, the uh, South American fire ant. And when they experience flooding, they'll all float to the surface of the uh, water and they'll create a raft out of their bodies. (laughs) And they'll actually walk over each other and direct where the raft's going to go. And uh, the queen's usually nested on the top. And uh, yeah, they'll, they'll, Start their own little boat out of their bodies. I would love to see a comic of this with the raft of ant bodies and the queen sitting in the middle being fanned by a leaf, just like onwards. Uh, There was actually a huge issue with it in Texas. I think it was like in 2007 or so. There was this massive flooding event and people were freaking out because they would go out into their like front lawns or the streets and there was just dozens of ant rafts, these islands that were pretty big of ants floating by. And these South American fire ants, they do have a stinger. Mm -hmm. So if you like happen to step on one or put a hand on it, like you get pretty bad stings. Uh, a follow-up question, and I it's a three-parter, and this might um, depend on the species of ant. So pick whichever species you would like. First question, M asks, how many ants would it take to lift an apple? All right. I'm going to base this all off of Lazy's New Niger, which is the species that I work with. Of course. Um, I would say to lift an apple, it would probably take like 150 ants or so. Okay. How many ants would it take to lift a whole 
sandwich. Let's say a clubhouse. <laughs> okay. I mean, I would say it's not okay. too much more. It's probably about 250. Okay. And assuming that M themselves is not an ant in disguise asking this question, <laughs> how many ants would it take to lift me? <laughs> Let's say a person. Uh, that's significantly more. That's probably about like 10,000 ants. Okay. So you'd need a lot of rafts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. A lot. Now I'm just picturing a person like laying on an ant raft and floating down a river or something like that. Yeah, it would be magical if it weren't for those dang stingers. Um, next question comes in from Britleaf who asks, speaking of leaves, uh, Britleaf asks, how come only some people can smell ants and why am I one of them? Uh, so different ants smell differently. Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure what you're talking about specifically. It might be just um, some people are better at smelling like subtle smells. Uh, like everybody has a different a ability to smell strong things. There are some ants. There's this really common one that you'll often find in your house called the coconut ants. This species called Tapanoma sessile. And it has a very, very subtle coconut smell if you pick it up and stuff like that. And I think in that case, some people can smell it and some people can't. But if you had like a handful of them, you would definitely smell it. I have a follow-up question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Other than this coconut ant, what what do ants usually smell like? Uh, so the most common chemical that ants use as a defense uh, is formic acid. Yeah. Okay. So they kind of have like a vinegary smell. Oh. Um, most of like the common like medium-sized black and red ants um, that you'll see in lawns and stuff like that. If you ever had one of those picked up or gotten on your leg and you swatted it off, usually that spot will smell very acrid and vinegary. Um, there's another really common species, at least in Ontario, and it is spread out until into BC, um, called Laziest Clavager or this subgroup of the Laziest called the Citronella ants. Mm. Um, and all of these ants are like bright yellow and they do smell like lemons. They are like super pungently lemon smelling. They're so common in Ontario that like I was making a garden last year in my backyard and there were so many of them that I just like I had to stop digging because I was getting like heady from how much lemon I was smelling. Whoa. It's crazy. That's wild. Also like follow-up question. Why? <laughs> like, why do they smell like lemon? So this is a really cool thing. Like most insects don't like the smell of lemons. Like when you think about it, there is like candles you can buy from Canadian Tire, these citronella candles that you can burn that will get rid of things like mosquitoes. Yeah. They just really don't like that chemical as like a set of defensive chemicals. Um, and so a lot of soil dwelling insects are the same kind of thing and invertebrates in general. If these citronella ants spray this citronella and it's super strong, it kind of creates like a force field around them that nothing will try and bite them. Okay, that's really interesting. Although I am wondering if now the coconut ants are more attractive <laughs> and if they're looking at the citronella ants being like, what the actual <laughs> <Yeah>. hell, <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, and I feel bad for the coconut ants because they really, they don't have anything <laughs> in defense other than like just sheer numbers. They just throw numbers at things. Our last question is from Telepathic Lollipop who asks, do ants actually make noises? And we talked a little bit about a little bit about this before. Do they? What's the what do they sound like? Yeah, yeah. 
So we were talking about the Paraponera ants and the fact that they have like striations on their gastro or their butt. And when they weave them together, kind of like a uh, cricket or a grasshopper would, then they make this kind of sound. And it varies depending on the species that we're dealing with. Um, different species actually can make different sounds. There are some ants that will make small noises from their mandibles or their mouth. That hasn't been recorded very frequently. I think there's some African like Sahara ants that will do that, but it's not like it hasn't been like confirmed as a means of communication. It's just we've noticed that they make those sounds. Um, but yeah, the paraponeral ones do specifically make these sounds and communicate through that. Uh, well, this is uh, this has been amazing. I want to uh, I want to hear I want to ha- have a whole album of uh, of these ant noises. The lullabies. Uh, well, should we should we nerd out, folks? What you nerding about? What you nerding about? If you want to get on the nerd out sub, please uh, send us what you've been nerding out with recently. We'll share it. Uh, But let's start with you, Aaron. What have you been nerding out about recently? Oh, I think the biggest thing that I've been nerding out about is uh, talking to strangers. It was a book that I read recently and it was going in depth about the different biases that we have when we're talking to people and like uh, meeting new people and how bad we are at judging people. Uh, It's kind of like, it's a little bit of a scary book, but at the same time, it's comforting. It's the nice idea that most often we are all truthful and we all consider everybody else truthful, but sometimes that can get us into problems if there's somebody that is not very truthful. And it just like, it makes me think about everything that's going on in the world right now and (laughs) judging people and that kind of things. Is this book by Malcolm Gladwell? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I've been, I've been wanting to. So, uh, it's really, really okay. good. Yeah, it was really interesting. I will I will add it to my to-read list. He has a podcast called Revisionist History, which is one of my all-time favorite podcasts. Oh. Michael, uh, what have you been nerding out about lately? Have you been talking with strangers? Has the pandemic got you to that point where you're just out there talking to people randomly? Well, I have been talking to strangers randomly, talking to them about if they <laughs> have done Wordle today or not. Are either of you Wordle players? Yes, pretty religiously. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it works and I refuse to look it up. <laughs> See, those the, there's two different kinds of people. There's people that play it religiously and people that actively refuse to know anything about it it's my own game yeah (laughs) (laughs) um it's fun and i think that there's something that i like to think about in that that collective consciousness of that everyone is thinking about this one word uh i like you know in thinking about sports for instance i used to like to have these thoughts that when everyone is really focused on one activity everyone's seeing sort of like one thing in mass numbers and thinking about ants like how collectively we're that shapes our feelings and our emotions and and things like that but specifically that got me thinking about word games and when i was a kid i was really into crosswords and it reminded me that i needed to get back into the goat of word puzzles and that is the new york times crossword now i used to work at a magazine stand we would get the dailies which is important so if you want to really get into crosswords you need to do the daily crossword on new york times because it changes so the monday is the easiest and then it builds up to the sunday which is the monster so so getting back into that and getting into that that headspace of how 
the person that creates the crossword is creating this play on language and you have to kind of get into their head to kind of like figure out what are they thinking? Because that's what they're trying to do with the puzzle is like how one word can have two meanings. And that's really like the, the crux of what the crossword is. And you're like, what are they trying to get at here? And then you're kind of playing around in your head. And then sometimes you need to figure out what the down or the cross is, to just like one letter. And it also gets me thinking about about different types of learning and how some people look at a word and they just think of like one or two meanings, but multiple people may have completely different meanings and how words alone aren't enough. You know, context is really needed, you mm -hmm. know, and as science communicators, I think we know just how important context is when we're communicating. And so of course, course words is just like throws a big wrench into all of that. And it makes your brain hurt, you know, because you try to figure it all out. My favorite example is recently the clue was the best sci-fi franchise mm. okay and the cool thing was is that both star trek and star wars worked and that it, depending on like up and down you could change the different clues to make so that both of them worked it was amazing uh really cool and fun puzzle love the new york times uh what about you kaylee you ever you ever done a crossword what are they what, what's uh, what's occupying you these uh, these days? Great question. I you know the crossword has never been a thing I got super into. I don't maybe I'm just lazy. I always really liked word searches. My grandmother tried to get me into the crossword. She was unsuccessful. Maybe you will be successful, Michael. I um this has been such a delightful conversation, and I have had so much fun and it's in stark <laughs> contrast to everything that I've been thinking about lately. and it feels like things, are getting worse and worse. So it's early March. Russia has just invaded Ukraine and over 1.7 million people have already fled. And amid all of this, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also just released the sixth climate report. And it's not great. And it was also kind of like, guys, read the room. <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> wait a little while to drop it, please. And all of these issues are really urgent and we need coordinated and immediate responses to support our collective health and safety. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And one thing in this new um, report from the IPCC that I was you know, encouraged to see was that there was recognition of the mental health impacts of climate change on people. And this is the first report that really looks at that robustly. And, and today I read an article in the conversation called um, Rapidly Increasing Climate Change Poses a Rising Threat to Mental Health, says IPCC. Very straightforward title. Um, and it discusses how rapid and dramatic shifts in climate and catastrophic events like flooding and heat domes, both of which we had here in British Columbia, just this last year in 2021, can increase anxiety, PTSD, depression, and ecological grief. And you might be thinking, Kaylee, <laughs> a little sad thing to nerd <laughs> out about. I'm really glad to see it taking front and center in this report because it demonstrates our growing attention in general to the importance of our mental health. And um, the article discusses the need for integrating climate-related mental health within training for public health professionals and practitioners such as physicians and psychologists and nurses in order to support people and our health systems so that those people experiencing climate-related health challenges get get necessary care. And so I'm hopeful that we're starting to think about health more broadly, generally, and that this is being integrated within our global response to climate change. And to be honest, I'm just really trying to muster all the hope I can 
on all fronts right now. So that is my nerd out. But just like everything else, we're dealing with it together, right? And that is the hope is that we're, yes. you know, I think when it comes to mental health issues, sometimes we get very sort of like isolated and thinking that, oh my God, like this is really something that you have to like take on yourself. And I think the one hope for me in that mental health is that there are people out there that you can, that are your support network, you know? Um, and it's really important to remember that uh, you can reach out to those people when you are dealing with mental health issues. And when it comes to the bigger things like climate change, we're all dealing with it. So we can all like lean on each other for support. Yeah. If you think about it, what we really need is a wordle, a wordle for <laughs> climate change, mental health issues. <laughs> Uh, well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Nerd and About. Uh, where can more people learn about NAZI, learn about your science communication or anything that you're doing? Uh, you can find me at Entobird, so E-N-T-O-B-I-R-D, on all social media platforms, pretty much. Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. Uh, yeah, and that's that's where I'll be most of the time. You should definitely get on there and follow Aaron on all of those platforms. Thank you again for hanging out with us. I actually learned way too much about ants, and I'm very excited <laughs> about it. There's so much more you can learn, too. <laughs> there are other questions here, like biggest ant, smallest ant, that we didn't even get to. Well, now I need to know. Biggest ant or smallest ant, Aaron? Which are the biggest ant, smallest ant? Biggest ant is probably the dinosaur ant is from Australia. And that kind of makes sense. That's the last thing we need is to think about an ant the size of a dinosaur. Like, come on. Like, Australia already has, like, all the terrible things in the world. Don't tell me that there is an ant the size of a dinosaur. Down <laughs> well, it's about, like, it's about three to five inches. So, like, not quite dinosaur, like, but big. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then smallest is really really tiny i'm not sure the exact tiniest but there is one from north america called brachymermax depolis that is like it's like half a millimeter in length uh for a worker so very 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 tiny yeah i mean who doesn't know brachy brachymermax <laughs> <laughs> true. Thank you, Aaron. This was so, so fun. And thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode was hosted by us, edited by me, and mixed by Elise Lane. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, get your gasters going to play that tiny violin. <laughs> <laughs>